evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Western Civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams, and on this program, I'm going to be talking about North America and three of the major port cities in North America. New Orleans in the south at the mouth of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River forms a delta going into the Gulf of Mexico. And the first place that a city could be built, the lowest practical place before that delta, uh, that was New Orleans. I'm going to talk about New York City on the Hudson River, which initially did not amount to very much, initially sort of forgotten, but later on began to triumph, and I will explain why. And then Montreal, in what is today Canada, on the St. Lawrence River, with access to the sea, and how, well, for a series of reasons, uh, what benefited New Orleans and New York took away from uh, the the glory, the economic future of Montreal. Because you, you do have, theoretically, everything is there for Montreal. You have an enormous hinterland, north and west, towards the Hudson Bay and the forests, prairies, um, Canadian Great Lakes, Lake Superior, then south to the Ohio and Mississippi Valleys. Now, all of that uh, capable of being channeled through the St. Lawrence as part of international, intercontinental commerce, uh, the way that was done when this area was part of New France. Now, back in the times of the, the first French explorer, Jacques Cartier, in 1535, the, the clear benefit could be seen. It was a very nice place to establish a city. When the French decided to set that city up in 1642, Montreal was established as a sort of outstation for the, the main city, Quebec, and subordinate to Quebec, first as a mission station because of the, uh, well, because of the presence of the Jesuits. When you talk about the, the French, um, the, the French presence in Canada, the Jesuits were there and extraordinarily influential in winning the support and goodwill of the natives, the Indian nations, the first peoples of the Canadian interior. But uh, very quickly, uh, Royal Mountain, Montreal, became a commercial place, uh, central to the uh, commercial economy there, which at the time, it furs, right, uh, pieles. Now, unfortunately, uh, just a few kilometers upriver, uh, you have part of the St. Lawrence, which is a series of cascades called uh, La Chine, right, uh, China. I'm not sure why, but it's called China. And uh, that would prevent maritime traffic uh, all the way to the Great Lakes. But you 
do have a route up the Ottawa River uh, to the north where there are large amounts of raw materials. And uh, you have easy passage south across a uh, large lake, Lake Champlain, that in turn will get you very close to the Hudson River and to New York. So that uh, although it was a, a nexus, although it was central to everything, um, it was also necessary to transport goods overland uh, to get there. Now, in the course of the French and Indian Wars, in the um, second half of the 18th century, the British defeated the French. The French simply left. And a great number of... um, Merchants came in from the British colonies to the south, hoping to exploit that, that hinterland, the fur trade. At a time when the um, Appalachian Mountains, the crest of the Appalachian Mountains, that was uh, supposed to represent the, uh, the limit to westward expansion, uh, none of that really seemed relevant in in uh, go, going so far so far north now uh, the good relationship with the native peoples uh, didn't survive all of this uh, there was expansion in canada very much the same way there was expansion in the united states and the indian nations of the great lakes were pretty much destroyed in frontier wars. What had been called the Old Northwest was opened so that things, well, at least at this point, uh, starting to look optimistic for Montreal as a, as a trade center. But, you know, that didn't last too long uh, with the... American Revolution, with the creation of the United States, you had all of the people who had been loyal to England, all of the people you know, forced out of the United States, basically, uh, through extortion, through, well, making their lives impossible. Thousands of people loyal to England, reestablishing themselves in Canada. And then uh, this idea that... Uh, that Canada and the United States were enemies, uh, that it would be impossible for them to cooperate. Um, in fact, Canada considered an existential threat uh, to the United States. When the United States declared war on England in 1812, uh, there, there was a very brief war. England, of course, was fighting Napoleon. It had better things to do, but they still had time to, say, enter Washington, D.C. and burn the public buildings there, Congress, the White House, burn them to the ground. Uh, the United States invaded Canada unsuccessfully, but with this idea of stopping this, this potential threat, and, of course, at the same time, uh, the United States representing an existential threat uh, to Canada, and especially a commercial 
threat. We'll be talking about that. Now, um, initially, the uh, the French there in Montreal, uh, with their furs, remember, pieles, which, well, they sort of became less attractive uh, in terms of um, fashion as the century, the 19th century, continued. So the market was diminishing, but in any case, uh, they were competing directly with the Hudson Bay Company to the north. And yes, the Hudson Bay Company was British. The people in Quebec and Montreal presenting themselves as the the alternative. But little by little, with this diminishing market, they had no no choice but to accept defeat and merge in 1821. Now, unfortunately, um, just like the, uh, the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes themselves are glacial. They were created by glaciers, just like the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, and yes, even, even the Baltic Sea, although it is connected to the Atlantic today. And because the glacial action there was so effective, uh, you don't get a lot of topsoil. You have uh, what is called the uh, the shield, um, el escudo, which is roca madre, right? It's it's bedrock, and the fertility there is highly limited. Uh, that means that farming is not a real option. In addition, uh, the soil is filled with rocks. And the winters are very hard. All of these, you know, uh, farmers understand that they would be much better off if they looked for land in the south. Now, of course, you do have mineral resources and you do have forests that can be turned into uh, timber, lumber, right? Um, recursos madereros, so that... um at least theoretically, that's, you know, that's very promising. But was well, a, a little like Russia in Siberia? Everybody knows that um, Siberia has everything that Russia needs in order to propel it into permanent prosperity. But nobody has been able to figure out exactly, you know, how how to do this, how to effectively extract those resources. And especially when, at least in, in the case of the St. Lawrence, uh, the St. Lawrence freezes for five months out of the year, from November to April, in addition to which it flows very quickly. It has a current that makes... Passage very slow and difficult, practically, um, practically impossible. If if we're not talking about steam engines, again, the steam engine making such a radical difference uh, to the fate of Canada, just as it did in the case of New Orleans, steam engines going up and down the Mississippi and the Ohio. But then. Um, and th- there was another problem, even then, uh, in addition to the physical problems, in addition to geography, uh, you had administration. Uh, in London, the government 
had divided Quebec province into two separate colonies, Upper and Lower Canada. Upper Canada being Anglophone, Protestant, and British. And then Lower Canada being Francophone, Catholic, and French. Now, uh, the, the, um, the merchant class there in Montreal, and many of the most dynamic of the individuals there were, were not uh, French. And they were completely frustrated to find themselves in a province uh, where local politicians didn't understand them, didn't understand their culture, uh, did not like their influence, and were absolutely opposed to any attempt to make Montreal more British. So these people are talking about um, making Montreal more um, more modern, and the local politicians, local citizens, when they hear the word modern, the only thing they can think of is British. And there were reactions, sometimes violent reactions. There was a French-Canadian rebellion in the late 1830s. But, again, uh, p- people understood that inertia, inertia wasn't working. I- inertia was, was retrograde. And it, it was going to be necessary to modernize the economy, um, especially when you looked at the competition. I'll be talking about that in a minute, but in the first half of the 19th century, New York all of a sudden became much more dynamic, and New Orleans as well. So they were at risk of turning their economy south, of becoming part of the hinterland of of New York or, or New Orleans, being dependent on those ports in the United States for their economic well-being and for their own safety, their own preservation, uh, they knew that they had to modernize. So that they built a canal to bypass the uh, Cascades, right, in La Chine, right, upriver on the St. Lawrence in 1825 and at public expense, giving them access to Lake Ontario. All of this required government authority and um, the imposition of a little bit of rationality at a time when um, other ports, other port cities, including London and Liverpool, uh, when they were uh, chaotic and there was quite a bit of wasted effort and needless duplication, well, Montreal's port facilities were under the control of a commission, a harbor commission. And all of this was done in a rational, uh, rational, sorry, a rational and sensible way with uh, direct access to manufacturing plants. Because I'm sorry to say this, but um, capitalism and uh, laissez-faire are really very incompatible with um, with infrastructure projects. I mean, the proof, the proof of this is New York City. If you go to New York City, if you go to Manhattan, and you see the 
subway lines. You will see that there are three subway lines that all go along the same route from downtown up the west side. And that there are no subway, no subway lines going, going cross town. So that if you want to go cross town through Central Park, for example, something like that, you either have to walk or take a bus, but uh, there is no logic to this. Those three lines promoted by private investors, each of them wanted to attract uh, the same customer and, and the result was ruinous. But there was no one there to, to to talk sense to these people, uh, to to establish a public transport system that made any sense, because the uh, the purpose of the subway system was not public transport. The purpose of the public trans, or rather the the subway system, was was profit. So who really cares about public transport? If you can make a profit. And uh, the history of the railroad system in the United States is, is very similar. Um, stupid duplication of routes and uh, competitors driving each other into bankruptcy with all of that needless expenditure and, and wasted effort and ruined infrastructure for for absolutely no purpose because there was no centralized authority to rationalize the system in a way in which everyone could make a profit but at the same time uh, maximize a public benefit well fortunately the the canadians the canadians were leaders in this or at least in Montreal, their port facilities subordinate to a harbor commission at a time when neither Liverpool nor London nor New York, when that sort of thing was was absolutely unheard of, right? Inaudito, uh, unheard of, inaudito. Now, local manufacturing, they, um, they, they. They began with flour, right? Um, arena, um, brewing, right? Cerveza. But pretty soon there were shoes and there were clothes and there were small manufacture, but it was enough. What they needed were steamboats. There was a private investor who financed the steamboat service between Montreal and Quebec. But, again, it was the uh, threat of invasion from the United States that really stimulated the British government to make this area economically viable. Now, earlier on, I was talking about how the um, the southern part of the United States was supplying cotton from plantations to the textile mills in northern England – uh, that being the, the driver of the Industrial Revolution, that being the key to Britain's exports and much of its prosperity. And how, in addition to economic ties, uh, the British were sort of predisposed to the Southerners, the Southern way of thinking. Uh, the North 
the North was protectionist. The North was not allowing uh, British products to enter without a duty, without a tariff, uh, without a significant barrier to entry, something the British did not like. Meanwhile, uh, behind this protective barrier, uh, the North was busy industrializing and starting to become a rival, an economic rival to Britain, which, of course, the British did not like. The Southerners, uh, the slaveholding class on their plantations with their great houses, cultivated a lifestyle of charm, uh, refinement, uh, very close to um, the English landed classes, the aristocracy on their estates. And so the relationship there was very, very convivial. So that a, a British lord could talk to a southern gentleman and discover that they have all sorts of interests in common. Whereas uh, you would look at someone from the north, someone, say, from New York, and see um, new money, uh, vulgarity, a person who thinks of the price of everything but the value of nothing, and uh, perhaps a potential rival, uh, somebody able to leverage, right, a, a palancar, leverage his position and um, do uh, quite a bit of damage to the uh, the interests of Britain. So, in, in general, it was just a question of when Britain was going to intervene to help the South. And, of course, with British intervention, the South would uh, inevitably gain its independence. There was nothing the North could do about that. The only real problem there would be what happens with Canada. Uh, because if the Britain, well, if the British decide to intervene on the part of the South, that means that the Union, the North, is surrounded. It means on both sides, North and South, they have, they have enemies, implacable enemies in Canada and the ones they are already fighting, starting in Virginia. So that uh, the only option left to them would be uh, to to invade Canada and conquer Canada and annex Canada. Now, this is what the British were worried about, and this is why the British were very generous in trying to build uh, the infrastructure that, that would make Canada viable. But again, um, the people, as I say, there was a great deal of rebellion, um, the French, they, they did not like this, the French Canadians. Uh, in the end, right after that rebellion was, was suppressed, uh, the two Canadas were united in 1840. Now, uh, because of these fiscal benefits, you know, the, entirely artificial, uh, because of these fiscal benefits for Canada, um, you had access to the British market the British market being protected by um, uh, the corn laws, laws against uh, the importation of grain. However, Canada was exempt from these laws. Canada uh, was, was considered part of Britain for the purpose of these laws. So that um, a lot of this grain was coming from Canada. Now, just, just imagine that, uh, uh, curiously, Ireland... <laughs> Ireland was not exempt from these laws. Ireland was not uh, 
not able to benefit economically the, the, the way Canada was from these laws. But on an earlier program, I talked about how uh, the British Prime Minister, a Tory, uh, Robert Peel, how he decided that instead of working in the interest of the landed class, um, it would be the, in the interest of everyone to simply eliminate these laws and have a free market for grain. And that, of course, <laughs> caused a crisis, but especially in Canada. Okay, um, I have to take a break. I'll be back in just a minute with the second part of the program. Camps, aventuras e inglés. Este verano no dejes que se te escapen. Ahora puedes aprender inglés con Baugan y Alexa de Amazon. Solo tienes que decir, Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. Bienvenido a Aprende Idiomas con Alexa. Hoy vas a poder aprender lecciones de inglés nivel iniciación con Alexa en colaboración con Baugan. Podrás aprender desde nuevo vocabulario a pronunciación y mucho más. Cada lección contiene secciones de práctica y de preguntas. Empecemos. Veamos ahora cinco actividades con el verbo ir. To go. Ir al gimnasio es. To go to the gym. La G de. Gym. Suena casi como una H. To go to the gym. Dilo tú. To go to the gym. Correcto. Eso es. Practica inglés con Baugan y con Alexa de Amazon. Acuérdate, solo tienes que decir... Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. Esto sí que es un... Buen comienzo. Te toca. Summer camps, campamentos de Baugan. Your kids will love them and their English will grow. Our summer camps, campamentos de Vaughan. Just bring us your children for English and much more. Programa completo de inmersión en inglés con alojamiento incluido. Tus hijos hablarán inglés durante todo el día mientras participan en talleres, juegos y actividades deportivas y multiaventura. Y todo eso sin clases. Todas las modalidades de campamentos Baugan están diseñados para niños y niñas entre 6 y 15 años, independientemente de la programación o la instalación. En nuestros campamentos de inglés se acostumbran a utilizar el inglés sin miedo y con total confianza, en un entorno rural, acogedor y seguro. La coordinación pedagógica de Baugan asegura un ambiente de inversión, cuidado y de calidad. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés. 911-335-832 911-335-832 Ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago. Agua a plazo sin intereses. Llámanos al 911-335-832 Campamentos de verano Baugan. El líder del sector. 911-335-832 No lo dejes para el último momento. 
Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos e inmersiones de la línea Junior de Vaughan. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pass perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pass perfect, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Field guard, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ha sacado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, qué crack el examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. ¿Tienes niños? Pues, ¿qué mejor forma que aprendan inglés que haciendo lo que más les gusta? En nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés se divertirán participando en un sinfín de variadísimas actividades en un entorno seguro y 100% angloparlante. Acompañados en todo momento de Monitores Vaughan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al 91 -133 -5832. 91-133-5832. Western Civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, my name is Guy Williams, and on the first part of the program, I was talking about uh, Canada in general and Montreal specifically. The economic history of Montreal, Montreal sort of fighting for its life, and how all of this was sort of eclipsed in the 1840s. The people had established a canal to bypass the um, cascades, uh, we would call them rapids, uh, the rapids uh, just upriver from the city so that you had direct access to the Great Lakes 
and to the farming products of the Great Lakes, to grain, to cereal, which was given tariff-free access to Britain at a time when other people didn't have that, at a time when certainly farmers in the United States didn't have that same kind of access. But there was a peculiar rule, in effect, that um, even if the cereal was grown in the United States, if it was transshipped through Canada, then it would also be exempt. It would be duty-free. That meant that Quebec uh, became the transport point. It became the logistical hub of its area. Now, if this had continued, its future would have been guaranteed. But, but no, no, in, um, in Britain, they, they eliminated the corn law. And colonies like Canada now had to compete on equal terms. And all of this, uh, profitability from cr- uh, grain grown in the, in the United States, all of that was, was eliminated. In Montreal, this was a disaster because it was only this tariff that had made it competitive with ports in the south, especially New York. The economic catastrophe uh, led to social catastrophe. And in 1849, there were riots and the parliament building was burned. A large part of the business community, right, the merchants there, they signed something called the Annexation Manifesto. In other words, they wanted Canada to be absorbed by the United States. This was, this was considered treasonous. This was, well, this was considered a, uh, sort of a wake-up call. Un al dabonazo, right? In, in London, that something was radically wrong. They were saying, we have no voice. There was a manifesto saying, we have no voice in the affairs of the empire. Which, of course, was exactly what had been said in the United States, uh, the, before the creation of the United States in, um, Discontent previous to independence. Uh, this was exactly uh, what was being said in Ireland. Uh, remember that this is coterminous with the Great Famine, right? The Umbruna in Ireland, and with the arrival of masses of destitute Irish. An exodus of people who, in many cases, were um, living skeletons. And all of this, again, because of negligence and simple lack of interest on the part of the authorities in London. So that, um, well, certainly, as I say, Canada at this point, um, perhaps this is the low and... um it is showing the world that it is not ready for globalization. It certainly cannot compete with New York for reasons we, we will see. Now, under the new system, it is twice as expensive to ship, say, flour, um, arena, 
through Montreal to Liverpool as it is to send that same flower through New York. The the only thing that made it feasible later on was steam, steam power, and subsidized steam power. It's something that is not understood about the British Empire and about the role of steamships. But the fact is that uh, much of this service was paid for by the taxpayer. The uh, economic viability was subordinate to the consolidation of the empire starting in the middle of the 19th century. And in the 1850s, the um, the city doubled in size. Quebec, or rather um, Montreal, went from 57,000 people to 90,000 people. Almost doubled in size. In any case, it was not the steamship, but the railroad that came to the rescue. That became a transport system that worked regardless of season. Uh, This was happening in the United States, obviously, starting in the 1850s. But at least the initial connection, uh, the initial connection went bankrupt. The Grand Trunk Railway, uh, which went actually, it went through Maine in the, the United States, by 1860, it was bankrupt. And people were most disappointed. I mean, just as, um, just as in the history of the United States, uh, people in the West always saw people in the East as the enemy. The, the rich people, the bankers, um, they, they didn't understand and were only too ready to exploit the weaknesses of the people on the frontier who were giving everything to domesticate the land, blood, sweat, and tears. Whereas uh, it was the bankers in the East who had the, the mortgages, las hipotecas, and um, the bankers in the East who controlled the economy. Well, you can imagine this this same kind of attitude in Canada, except that uh, the bankers are living in an area where political control is in the hands of uh, French-speaking Catholics. And, yes, the whole thing is, is sort of precarious. Um, you can imagine a, a line, some, I don't know, five thousand kilometers long like from 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 Lisbon to Moscow but but a very very thin line from Newfoundland um Labrador no um through Nova Scotia all the way across the Rockies to British Columbia on the Pacific and it was in part this fragility and in part as i say the threat of American intervention and annexation that spurred the, uh, the spurred is uh, to spur son espuelas, no espolear, uh, like stimulated or propelled or drove a man named John McDonald to create a confederation between 1864 and 1867 
uh, right during the American Civil War. The Civil War in the United States from 61 to 65. There, there were many things happening at this time in the, uh, when, um, when the United States was, was sort of, uh, incapable of extending or, you know, projecting its power. This, this is one of them. Uh, another one, the French invaded Mexico with Spanish and British help, but the French went further and established their own candidate as emperor of Mexico. And Mexico had to work very hard to defend itself from the French and from this pretender. In addition to which, uh, this was about the time when uh, Spain, uh, which had created, uh, well, there were brand new ships in the Navy, and uh, Leopoldo Odonil, uh, he was he, uh, the conqueror of Tetuan and so forth. He was a military hero. He wanted military victories. Uh, they, they were helping the Chinese in Cochinchina. Spain wanted to uh, manifest its power in the Pacific. And so under the pretext of uh, wanting to collect debts, the uh, well, Spain... Um, occupied the Chinchas Islands, where Peru uh, was getting a lot of its revenue from, you know, phosphates um, created by bird shit, um, guano. Guano is an ad- indigenous word, but um, in- adopted by Spanish and English. We call it guano. And this was a war for phosphates in the form of guano, which represented, I, I don't something like a third of the, the revenue of Peru at this time. In any case, the uh, admiral in charge managed to insult a series of countries by not recognizing their sovereignty and uh, any attempts at conciliation uh, met with public indignation uh, so that uh, the, the, the public really wanted a war against Spain. Um, and this was true in Peru, in Chile, in Bolivia and in Ecuador, uh, they they all were in a state of war against Spain. Spain bombarded um, Valparaíso. Spain bombarded Cuzco, which is the uh, the port city of of Lima in Peru. Spain uh, celebrated by uh, naming one of the plazas, you know, in the Gran Vía, uh, Cuzco. Madrid celebrated by um, the, the, this working class neighborhood, which was just beginning to form at this time, um, and they called it Pacifico. Actually, the, there was the street. What today is the Avenida Mediterráneo uh, was the Avenida Cuzco. I'm sorry, <laughs> Avenida Pacifico. And as yeah, they called the neighborhood Pacifico. Today there is a metro called. Pacifico, and this is called the Guerra de Guano or Guerra de, de Pacifico, Guerra de las Islas Chinchas, and it, it was all because of O'Donnell. He wanted to uh, project Spanish power abroad. Actually, you know, it was like um, it was like a toy. Spain finally had uh, some of the best ships in its navy. And uh, the temptation to use those ships was just too strong. In any case, uh, as I say, there, there were all sorts of things happening 
in the 1860s in the Americas that probably would not have happened if the United States had not been incapacitated by its civil war. Now, part of this idea of a federal union offering Canada as a, an alternative, as you know, s- something um, different from the United States, uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, especially on the Atlantic coast, hoped that a railroad connection with Montreal would bring Canadian products to their ports. And uh, politically, you had a separation. Um, the French part of Canada would now be called Quebec, whereas the British part of Canada would now be called Ontario. And, uh, uh, of course, many English speakers in Montreal were, were terrified at this prospect. They they thought that they would be isolated. And, yes, Britain was in favor of this. The, uh, the whole area called Rupert's Land, which is uh, the, the north of Canada, which was nominally under the control of the Hudson Bay Company, was sold to Canada for practically nothing. And it guaranteed the future viability of Canada uh, just the same way that um, when Napoleon sold Louisiana to the United States, all of a sudden the United States didn't have to worry about its future anymore. Well, th- this is the comparable moment in the case of Canada. And so, well, in many ways you could sort of think of the, the creation of what we know as Canada um inconceivable without the threat of of the United States of uh, what was going to happen in the Civil War and the the end of the American Civil War there was a um, the, the idea of a Pacific railway right um, the, the idea of a railway connecting the entirety of Canada. Now, uh, the first person to propose this, Prime Minister MacDonald, well, there, there was a um, steamship owner, there was a magnate, right, magnate, called Hugh Allen, and he was busy promoting this when it was revealed that uh, he was paying money to politicians first. Secondly, that uh, a lot of the money behind this project was coming from the United States. And it, it just didn't get built. There was a, um, there was an enormous depression in Canada after this. And many tens of thousands of Canadians simply moved south. Uh, in desperation, there was, um, a movement for tariff protection, much the same way there was in the Great Depression, right? In the 1930s, um, in the 1930s, they decided that the, the only way to foment local economy was to isolate the local economy from the vicissitudes of international trade. Now, certainly this makes political sense, and... 
to someone who doesn't know much about economics, it it makes economic sense. But to professional economists, this is exactly the wrong thing to do. In any case, it, it is what Canada did. And the beneficiary were that part of Canada, which was busy trying to industrialize, specifically Montreal. By the way, because of overinvestment in railroads and um, other infrastructure projects, there was a, there was a worldwide depression in the 1870s. Spain was doubly unlucky in that its first republic and its second republic coincided with times of deep world depression, so that um, the republic was declared at exactly the wrong time. But uh, in in terms of the global economy, um, one of the lessons that came out of the Depression of 1870 was that you need a captive market. And so this is when many countries, especially um, France, but also the newly created Germany, remember 1870s, the year Germany was created, the year Italy was created, um, but also places with established colonies like like Portugal, they began to think that economic survival depends on captive markets. And it is absolutely essential to connect the metropolis with its producer of raw materials and make sure that those connections are solid. So, yeah, Germany had to create a world empire from nothing, uh, bits and pieces that it could find. France already largely present in Africa, doubling down on Africa and Indochina. And of course, Spain with Cuba in addition to North Africa. But yes, this, uh, this policy, this Canadian policy of, of tariffs greatly benefited places that were in the process of industrialization such as Montreal, which in 20 years after 1871, it, it doubled its population, becoming an industrial city with without a dynamic economy in the background and um, frustrating, frustratingly limited prospects. And it was only re- really... It was only really... Um, uh, toward the end of the 19th century, when things began to pick up. A- and it began to pick up, uh, just as I was saying, because the the metropoly, the center of the empire, needs an increasing amount of raw materials from its periphery. So the price of wheat went up. The demand for wheat went up. Exports of wheat to Britain increased by 15 times, 1,500% between 1901 and 1914. In addition to which, um, Ontario, as I say, the, uh, the con el escudo, with it, with the shield there, you have uh, direct access to quite a number of materials. So, uh, nickel, zinc, copper, cobalt. And just as, uh, between 1900 and 1913, uh, Global trade doubled. In Canada, in that same period of time, external trade tripled. Now, 
Montreal was at the center of this. Montreal, uh, the Bank of Montreal being the largest. And um, however, the uh, the most dynamic people in Montreal, uh, being a sort of elite of uh, mostly Scottish, mostly Scottish, um, the intermarried, um, you know, they had been there for generations and a sort of aristocracy that were still very protectionist, monopolist and mercantilist. Uh, the, the idea that, um, well, certainly that the United States was the enemy and that anything Canada could do to protect itself from the giant to the south was welcome. But all of this became, you know, dependent, more and more dependent on London and especially, uh, London finance, right? The city, the city of London. People, uh, people in Montreal at this time, you know, they, they sort of compared it to, um, to Belfast in Northern Ireland where the, the elite is Protestant and the, uh, the working class is Catholic. The, um, well, in this case, um, Catholic Francophone, but supplemented by recent arrivals, I- Italian and Polish, who were equally Catholic, but not necessarily Francophone. There was this idea, there was a cultural renaissance, uh, this idea that the um, French Canadians were subjugated, right, conquered, exploited, like uh, uh, Abasayalo. This idea becoming increasingly prominent uh, over the course of the 20th century. However, again, over the course of the 20th century, the investment in Canada uh, begins to come from the United States, less and less from England, uh, certainly after the First World War and... Definitely, after the Second World War, the money is no longer coming from Britain. As a matter of fact, uh, there were times when um, Canadian money was being borrowed by British financial institutions, where the Canadians were the creditors. But in any case, by by the 1970s, American investment in Canada was... Eight times as high as British investment. But again, by that time, uh, by that time, uh, Toronto's the supremacy, uh, Toronto's being the number one city in terms of industry, had been permanently established. All right. Uh, I'm out of time. Thank you for listening and please listen to my next program. Camps, aventuras e inglés. Este verano no dejes que se te escapen. 
¿Crees que tienes un buen nivel de inglés? Vete a Bowentown y date cuenta, nada más llegar, de que tu dominio es más cercano al cero absoluto. En inglés decimos humble pie, o sea, comer tarta de humildad. Bowentown te dará primero un rudo despertar y conforme pasan los días, un nuevo despertar. Un despertar lleno de seguridad, confianza y convicción. Si existen los milagros, Bowentown se cuenta entre ellos. ¿Estás pensando en apuntar a tus hijos a clases de inglés? Seguro que cuando se lo dices piensan... 